Hey, this is Vanessa. I'm the Prevention Services Coordinator at King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, or KSARC. This is Building Resilience, a project with the purpose of equipping people with what they need to end sexual violence. So I'm a child of the 90s, a time of Tamagotchi, Beanie Babies, and dial-up internet. This was also a time that stranger danger was a really significant public health message. Parents and caregivers were encouraged to take precautions and educate their children on the potential dangers of people who are unfamiliar to them. One of these safety measures was agreeing with your child on a code word. This was basically a password that was used to identify whether the stranger who was there to pick you up from school was bluffing or if they were truly sent by your parents. Remember, this was a time before cell phones were everywhere, so it's not like you could easily call or text your parent to double check. And fun fact, the code word that I chose to use with my parents was encyclopedia because I was pretty proud that I could spell it. Here's the thing about stranger danger, though, and it's a main critique of the concept. A large majority of all child sexual abuse or abduction is perpetrated by someone that the child and the child's family knows and trusts, like a family friend, a coach, even a relative. Grooming is a term used for the process that a potential offender uses to gain and build trust with a young person and their family. Often, after people become aware of what grooming is, they ask, how can I tell if someone's genuinely a nice, helpful person or if they're manipulating me and my children? It's important to remember that grooming goes far beyond someone just being a friendly person. My family service specialist colleagues have many years of experience in the field of gender-based violence, and I've worked with hundreds of families of child abuse survivors, and they can speak to the five common behaviors that offenders of child sexual abuse utilize. It may seem creepy that these patterns of behavior pop up in so many cases of child sexual abuse. As Deanne mentions in this episode, it seems like it's straight out of a playbook. But at least it's really helpful for folks to know and recognize what red flags to look out for. As a heads up, this can be a topic that is challenging for listeners as there's discussion of child sexual abuse and emotional and mental manipulation. Hi there. We are here to talk about the topic of grooming today. It is a buzzword in this profession of social work and those of us who work with victims of sexual assault, but I'm hearing it more and more in the community. And so I think it's a topic worth spending some time talking about and helping parents understand. And I'm here today with some professionals who have been doing the work for quite some time and have spoken to many parents and many victims of sexual assault over the years. I'm Deanne Yamamoto, Deputy Executive Director of KSARC. Hi, I'm Erin Esteban, uh, Bilingual Family Services Specialist here at KSARC. Hi, I'm Karen Cope, and I'm the Family Service Specialist at KSARC. Hi, I'm Marie Pareda. I'm also a Family Services Specialist here at KSARC. And I'm Vanessa. I am the Prevention Services Coordinator at KSARC. We have been looking forward to talking about grooming for quite some time. It's one of those words that has a lot of content behind it. And we're hoping to sort of peel back the onion and look at what's underneath that word. I guess I want to define it a little bit. But um, to do that, um, it will take some time. So grooming, if I were to define it in a couple sentences, is when someone makes a deliberate and even strategic effort over time to gain the trust 
of someone, in this instance, we're talking primarily of children, who will be um, possibly a victim of sexual assault by this person who's doing the grooming. It's an odd word, but I think as we start to talk about it, you'll begin to understand why that word is fitting for this process that offenders use. And the oddest thing about it is we've talked to a lot of victims over time, and it almost feels like and sounds like a playbook. Like there's so many things that we were able to quantify and categorize that are similar from one victim to another in terms of what the offender does. And so that's why we think it's really important for parents to understand what we believe are the key strategies that offenders use. So let's take it away. I I hope you understood it a little bit from that definition, but you definitely will by the end of this podcast. And so we have five key strategies that offenders use, and we want to bring them to life so that you understand it, so that you can recognize it when you see it, so that your instincts, so that the hair on the back of your neck will stand up when you um, begin to recognize these strategies. The first one is building relationships. Now, building relationships is what we all do. I mean, that's what friendships are based on. But within this world, where the offender is deliberately trying to gain the trust of a child, that building relationships kind of takes on a different flavor. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, offenders are not just going to build a relationship with a child. They're going to build a relationship with the community. And when I talk about the community, I'm talking about wherever they go, if it's a church, their school, their neighbors, their friends, and they're going to be building relationships with even the children's family so that they become friends. And nobody ever is going to um, think that they're doing anything wrong, that it's just normal for them to be friends. Sometimes families, offenders become friends with the victim's family and the family becomes victim with the offender and their family. So it just looks normal. so that, you know, that's one one thing that, you know, within the family. But then you've got the church or the school or the basketball coach or the, the baseball coach. That's another, that's another um, community-based um, place where offenders can go to anywhere that's to do with sports. Um, and it's not just these things. These are just some examples. Um, where they're building that relationship, and they sometimes offenders are like the pillar of community of the community as well. They will um, make sure that they'll be the babysitter for children. <laughs> Maybe even they will um, take kids out to the McDonald's or whatever. But they just want they just want um, to build relationships with anywhere, anybody in that community so that they look good and nobody is going to suspect that they are an offender of child sexual abuse. So that's, and then eventually they do, they they recognize or they put their eyes on one child, I guess, and they they, they look for their child that, that it's going to be easy for them to make relationships with. And they want somebody that, 
a child will start trusting them because by this time everybody's trusting them. So it's okay to leave your child with them because the parents or the community see this person in a light that's that everybody trusts. And so often, you know, you know, when we I think think in our minds about who could be a possible, you know, sex offender, um, you know, we we don't think of the people in our community who are so nice and charming and helpful. Um, but really that's more, more often than not who they are, right? These are people who, if anybody asked about, you know, that particular person in the community, everybody might say, oh, they're the best ever. Like they're always, you know, offering to help out. You know, they, you know, they'll, they'll come in, you know, a mom who's, you know, having to go to the hospital to visit, you know, a sick child, like they'll offer to give her a ride and, you know, and, and help her out, even though, even though maybe it's like extra time and gas and everything, you know, that they have to do. Um, they just come across as a really helpful, really nice person. Um, and, you know, and, and on the, on the flip side, you know, we're talking about people who might insert themselves into, a community, you know, as a coach, as somebody in a religious community. Um, at the same time, we know that sex offenses often happen within families. And so, you know, it's also somebody within a family, right? And so a lot of times families don't feel comfortable with, you know, somebody from outside the family taking care of their kids, you know, but an offender from within the family, you know, will be that really nice uncle or, you know, the grandpa or, you know, um, you know, the majority of offenders are men. So, you know, those are the references that we use primarily, um, although there are other types of offenders as well. Um, but, you know, when it's within the family, you know, they're working to build that relationship, you know, to show the other family members that they're trustworthy, uh, that they can feel comfortable leaving their kids around them. And then they're also working to build the relationship with the child, right? So they're working to be that nice uncle or that nice dad or, you know, whoever it is who, you know, they're fun. They know what those kids like. You know, they know the kinds of video games they play. They they know the kinds of shows they like to watch. Um, you know, they 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 know the games they like to play. And so they'll they're willing to get down and and play that with them, you know, which is not common for a lot of adults. So kids start to feel that trust and really want to be around them. Yeah, and I guess that's why I talked about how offending behavior is strategic. We have to keep in mind that the offender is most often somebody the child and the family knows, likes, or loves. And that trust builds over time, right? We don't immediately trust somebody, but it builds over time. So that person has in their mind... Um, their ultimate goal, which is to offend a child. And these strategies take time to build. So building those relationships becomes very, very important. And as Karen said, from the point of the community, gaining trust from the community, all the way down to the family, then to the child themselves. So building relationships becomes very, very important. But I think the next thing that we were talking about that offenders do is they blur the boundaries. So the boundaries that we have set up or that we think are normal gets blurred by the offender. How does that happen? So with blurring boundaries, Deanne, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up. It's, you know, they've set up the stage, right? You know, being getting us to trust them, building that relationship with us. 
then they start to test those boundaries and test those boundaries by, you know, when we say blurring boundaries, it could be, you know, playing games, you know, um, seeing what they could get away with, right? Will the child tell that I am, you know, rubbing her back, um, um, whether they're coaches or whatever, you know, and playing the tickling game, you know, you know, um, which may seem normal to other people, right? And just like regular play, learning those boundaries of, okay, let me see if, if she's going to say anything, if she feels uncomfortable, is she going to tell mom? Is he going to tell dad? You know, the, that um, seeing where it's part of just regular play, you know, and test those waters is, and then move on to that sexual touching. Absolutely. That reminds me of a story when there was a time when as an agency, we were working with offenders who were coming out of prison. And talk about building trust. I mean, somehow we built trust with them to where they would actually talk a little bit about the strategies they would use. They know they use strategies. And there was one incident where this person was a basketball coach. And he went through step by step how he was able to target his victim. So he would set a practice up that had no notice whatsoever. We're going to meet in an hour. So if you want to play basketball, show up in an hour. Well, he knew that the kids who showed up in an hour didn't need parental consent because who can get a hold of their parents in that short amount of time? And then he would go on to say, we're going to meet one-on-one. And, you know, what parent, you know, what child has the freedom to meet one-on-one? It's, it's children who have a little bit less adult oversight. And he went through one by one how he blurred those boundaries. And I was stunned. We've always talked about how strategic offenders are, but I honestly did not know it was strategic to that degree. It shocked me. I don't know if you have other sort of stories like that. A lot of times, you know, the stories that we hear... Um can be really little nuanced things, you know, like if it's an offender who's operating from within the family, you know, it, it might be really small things like, you know, um, mom doesn't really like, you know, that the kids all roughhouse and tickle because someone always ends up crying, you know, at the other end of it because it goes too far. Um, you know, but the offender, you know, just keeps, you know, pushing at it and, you know, and, 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 making it seem fun for the kids, you know, so that the kids want to keep doing it. And then when they all get in trouble, you know, for, for still tickling or roughhousing when they weren't supposed to, um, you know, then the offender, you know, makes excuses for it. Like, oh, we're just having fun. Oh, it's all in good fun. You know, it's, it's no big deal. They're kids. That's what kids do, you know? Um, and, you know, and then, and then maybe taking it further, you know, maybe, um, you know, starting to, to do different kinds of, um, boundary, boundary blurring in terms of, you know, maybe there's supposed to be rules about, you know, having the bathroom door closed, you know, when somebody's taking a shower, you know, but maybe an offender will say, oh, but, you know, I might need to run in, you know, to grab, you know, something that I need, you know, and so don't lock the door, you know, in case I need something, um, or, you know, and and then they might just happen to accidentally, you know, walk in right when they're changing um, um, or getting out of the shower. 
you know, an offender might might walk through the house, you know, with their robe and then let it slip open, you know, um, even though maybe they have family rules about, you know, kind of what is appropriate, you know, clothing to wear um, throughout the house. I'm, I'm just, I'm also, that's reminded me of another one where there's a, <clears throat> where the offender says, don't listen to your mm-hmm. mom. Your mom thinks that you're a child. I, I think that you're much more grown up than your mom. Don't mm-hmm. listen to her. Listen mm-hmm. to me. You know, and then so, I, especially if it's a teenager, the teenager pops up and thinks, gosh, I am mm-hmm. older. I don't have to listen to my mom. And then that's a wedge that's been put between the mum and and that teenager, for example. And then he, the offender's right in there. So, that, you know, that's another blooding boundary. That's a really good well. example because... Oh, I didn't interrupt you. Yeah, that's a good example because it's not only blurring boundaries, but really changing and redefining the boundary for the child. So the boundary that was set in place or that children naturally might know, that offender just redefined it, which is similar to the next one we want to talk about, which is normalizing behaviors. So what becomes normal is different. So what is normalizing behaviors like? Yeah, so normalizing behaviors is, you know, it's kind of that next step beyond blurring the boundaries um, where, you know, a family, um, you know, I've had parents tell me that when they grew up, you know, that they roughhoused all the time, you know, with their siblings and, you know, it was no big deal. That's just how, you know, how siblings are, right? They're, they're constantly wrestling and tickling. And, and then in a family where maybe it's the dad, you know, or, or an adult figure in the household who's constantly roughhousing and, you know, and grabbing at the kids and making it sound like that's just normal, right? And even though, you know, really that would be normal maybe for same-aged kids, you know, but we're talking about an adult male, right, who's way bigger, you know, in size physically, um, has more power than than a child or the teen. Um, and and so they're kind of, you know, they, they use, you know, those kinds of things that we would say, oh, yeah, no, for in some instances that's normal, Right. But they're kind of expanding on it and saying, oh, no, it's normal in all instances. You know, when I do it, it's normal. Um, You know, they might they might do different sorts of things, you know, in terms of like making a punishment, for example, you know, say for a, a teen of saying, oh, you know, you didn't follow this rule. Okay, we're taking off your bedroom door. You no longer get to have any privacy. And as if that's like a normal rule that, you know, just a normal consequence um, when really that's like creating this opportunity where, you know, the offender can now like invade their privacy and and be able to spy on them, you know, when they're changing Um, or or be able to go in and they are not able to lock their door at night, maybe if that's something that they were trying to do. Yeah. I think in my work with schools, this kind of also goes with blurring boundaries, but the conversations that um, teachers might have with students in really normalizing like, oh, you know, like you're mature and we can talk about like sex and like who, you know, you're like hooking up with and stuff when 
really that is not normal conversations for a teacher or someone in a position of power to have with someone younger, but, um, you know, really leveraging that power and saying like, I'm teaching you, I'm modeling what's normal when it's absolutely not normal. Exactly. And a lot of times, you know, they might, you know, tell like a joke, you know, that's kind of like about sex or they might show something about pornography, you know, and kind of, um, you know, sometimes they even start with pornography that's actually like, you know, um, animated, like animated, right, images of pornography. Um, and it's, And it's a way of them kind of making it seem to the child like, oh, this is normal because it's just cartoons, right? And then as a child starts to get used to that being supposedly normal, then they can say, oh, hey, and now we're going to try this because remember, we watched this and then we're going to do what it, you know, what they're doing too. So they, they do use, you know, a lot of different topics, you know, to, to introduce to, to the child or the teen um, to make it seem like that's just normal. And the thing is, is that kids believe it, yeah. right? Because these are adults telling them these things. And some of the be- the behaviors from the offender are normalized to the whole family and the whole community. It goes back to that place as well, that, so that nobody can recognize. So the tickling in front of aunties and uncles or the parents, I'm, I'm tickling the kids and everybody can see it. I've got a kid on my lap and everybody can see that. And so it becomes normal and nobody can see that that's part of the he's just a really huggy guy he likes the physical touch and he's demonstrative that way yeah and with little kids it's often disguised as a game isn't it yeah just the way he is yep yep let's play the tickle game right i had a kid tell a mom that she loved playing the button game and mom never asked what the button game is she was just happy she was um with a child care provider that uh, entertained her and she was happy about it and you know come to find out the button game was her taking her clothes off and um, that provider uh, touching her breasts so that came out in a very slow way but that that whole normalizing that behavior as a game this is a game that we play every day and it just got progressively um, more damaging so normalizing behaviors, and we kind of are merging into those behaviors, then becoming physical touch. So how does that, and you're getting the idea, I think everyone's getting the idea that it's progressive, right? It just doesn't start with um, out and out sexual assault. For the most part, it's progressive. Um, so let's talk about physical touch. Yeah. So, you know, the physical touch could start like in a, I think we've talked about this, tickling and um, roughhousing, shall we say, um, wrestling. That that's It could be that. Or it could just even be like touching somebody's back and giving them a little rub, you know, and it could be just to console them or just say, oh, you're doing a good job. It can start like that. Um, sitting on knees, maybe, if, it, if the child's younger. Um, it could, you know, it could even be like brushing against them, and nobody would nobody would know that, <laughs> nobody would see that, and that would just be like an accident, um, or a so-called accident. But it's what's it's the intention that's behind the offender, <laughs> so, you know. So he he, this is part of his plan to start 
rubbing against the victim um, in any shape or, you know, not not sexual, but just like maybe just touching her hair or touching her shoulder, any body part, but it's just starting that touch. Um, and then for some people that, again, that can look normalized because that can be in front of people. So the kid doesn't know that that's wrong. Kid just thinks, oh, that's just normal. That's what happens. Um, and then it progresses to maybe, well, it will progress to sexual, whatever that, you know, it might be touching on the on the butt. You can touch my private part. It's okay. You know, can I touch your private part? That, you know, it does progress into that. Um, and, that, you know, that's when the boundaries are blurred again and all the things that we've just talked about. Um, but that that's that's the touch part for sure. I don't know if other people have got And like what to. you mentioned, Karen, you know, about it occurring in front of other adults, right? So if it's incurring and, you know, for the from the child's perspective, oh, my mom's here watching and and you know, this person is giving me a hug or patting me on the back, so that's normal. You know, from the child's perspective, once it starts to progress further, you know, and and once in private, you know, be does become sexual abuse. A lot of kids end up thinking, well, my mom must know, right? Because, you know, she's there when, you know, when this guy's touching me in different ways. She saw it, you know, and she didn't say anything. She didn't intervene to stop it. So it must be okay. Or she must know about it. Um, and from the adult's perspective, you know, seeing, you know, if say the person is touching their child in a totally normal way, you know, like just a pat on the back, you know, no boundaries crossed, um, you know, or, or just a hug or whatever it is, then then they get this reinforced idea, oh, this is a really nice person, they're very helpful, everybody likes them, and I've never seen them touch any children inappropriately. Like that's the first thing that comes to somebody's mind when when a person gets a few accused of sexually abusing a child is, oh, but I've never seen them do anything like that. And they've seen actually the opposite. They've seen them, you know, purposefully touching the child in a really normal way. So, you know, on on the other side, sometimes when it's abuse occurring within families, um, I would also say that sometimes an offender will kind of maximize on the fact that they want the child wants their attention. They want to feel loved and given affection. And so sometimes the offender will actually not touch them at all in front of other people, will like really be kind of, you know, distance themselves and kind of like just be abrupt and not not real nice and close with the child. And then when they're alone, be really affectionate towards the child, you know. And so then the child feels like, oh, well, if if I want to get that affection, I have to put up with the abuse because, you know, the, that touch and that closeness and that affection will only happen in private. And that's really confusing for parents when they see, when they find out about that abuse because they're like, well, but he never even hugs my child, you know? He never even, like, they never even sit next to each other on the couch. So how could it ever have happened? And that's why I think it's really hard for parents as well to recognize because some it looks so much like normal behavior or could look like normal Well, no, behavior. it all goes back to that building 
relationship, right? That's the foundation that offenders are using, that they have a trusting relationship with the parent or the caregiver. So it goes right back there. And so I want to make it clear that we're not, you know, sexual abuse that happens is 100% the offender's responsibility. 100%. So I want to, I, I know that people possibly listening to this podcast, I don't want you to hear blame that because a particular strategy was re- not recognized that it's the parent's fault. Um, it is not. It's the offender just being an offender and being good at it, you know? Yeah. And honestly, we hear some stories and, and, you know, the four of us, five of us sit around and say, I would have never known either. I totally understand. I would have never known. He was just that good. So that does lead me to, so we've talked about building relationships, blurring boundaries, normalizing the behavior, the physical touch, and then finally, the secrets. How do you keep a child from telling? Right. And that's the one thing, you know, why sexual assault is just not talked about. They're so good at getting kids to keep that secret. And sometimes it doesn't come straight out about sexual abuse itself. A lot of times, you know, they test their kid, they test their victims about, okay, you know, keeping a secret. And it could be as minuscule as eating a cookie or don't tell mom we stopped by 7-Eleven and got Slurpees, okay? And so they test that. And they'll see, okay, did, when we get home, does she tell or does he tell mommy that they went and got Slurpees before dinner? And it could be something as simple as that, right? To see how much can this child, can their victim not say anything to anybody, right? And it could start off like well, just a cookie or don't don't tell mommy I, um, don't tell mommy I gave you a cookie or don't tell mom, you know. And whether or not that child tells, right, they're testing. And so if you tell mommy, and they may even say little things, like if you tell mommy, we're going to get in trouble, right? Or even using little things of, if you tell mommy, she's going to make me, she's going to kick me out. Or if you tell mommy or daddy, you know, then we won't be able to play anymore. You can't play my Xbox or you can't play video games with me if you tell mommy. So they use different types of strategies to keep the secrets alive, right? And so kids hold on to that, you know? And so, and I know as parents, they have, you know, that I've worked with, they struggle with, well, how do you, you know, how do you keep, how do you teach your kids about keeping secrets versus keeping surprises, right? And the one thing about keeping secrets is if that information is revealed, you know, if, is, is there, is there a negative outcome, right? Um, is someone going to be unhappy? Is there going to be an, a different emotion? Whereas surprises, right? And I think that's often what parents get confused about. Surprises are good things, you know, a birthday present or whatever, right? And so the thing with offenders is they see what they can get away with or what secrets that they could hold on to and to keep their child, to keep that victim quiet. Secrets can also be um, make that child feel special as well. Because you're that special mm-hmm. child and it's our secret and you're not going to tell anybody and it's just between you and me and you're so special. And I, I think this is going to be mm-hmm. just our secret, so don't tell anybody. 
because if you do, then it won't be a secret anymore, and it, we, you can't, it, we won't be right. special. It won't be special. And if you're saying that to a wee five-year-old, or and you know that's and they're going to hold on to they it. They want to feel special, absolutely. Yeah. And for older kids, you know, a lot of times we might assume that there has to be like really direct threats about what will happen if they tell the secret. Um, but in reality, offenders are really good at manipulation. And so they know the angle to take and they know if, if the child worries about their mom a lot, you know, then they might say, well, if your mom finds out, she's going to be really angry and, and I just don't know if she can handle it, you know, um, or, or, you know, and maybe telling the child that they might be in trouble for it. Um, you know, but I've heard of a lot of families where, you know, maybe the mom has some kind of health problem, you know, maybe she has high blood pressure or she has diabetes or, you know, something that she manages, but the offender can exploit that and can say, well, you know, if she finds out, you know, she just might get really sick and, you know, you, you know, you don't want to, you don't want her to get more sick, you know, um, or, or they might exploit the fact, you know, that the child likes, you know, being around the offender, you know, and wants to help the family stay together, you know. So they might say, you know, if, if people find out, I might have to move out and that would be hard on all of us, um, you know. And so it's it's not always this kind of direct threat, you know, but it's, it's a way that um, they can exploit, you know, whatever is important for the child, you know. Yeah, so that... The, the secret can definitely be indirect or it can be direct. But I think also, too, kids kind of take on responsibility for the care of their siblings or their family, right? Because I've heard um, victims talk about, I didn't want this ha to happen to my younger siblings. And so um, it was important for me not to tell. I, I wanted to protect them at all costs. And so they hold on to that. This topic of grooming can just go on and on. We have... We have information and stories to tell that can go on and on. But I'm, I'm hoping folks have a, a flavor of what grooming is. We always like to end our podcast with three takeaways. And the first takeaway on this one is trust. Trust your intuition and act on it. Yeah. Yeah, so... Trusting our intuition is so, so important. I do want to point out something that you had said earlier, Deanne, was that it's never the parent's fault. This is never your fault. You know, we're not putting blame on anybody except for the offender. But the thing about when I speak to parents and they're trusting their intuition, there are red flags. They can see red flags sometimes. But nobody wants to think, oh my gosh, is that... I don't want to be accusing anybody of sexual assault because what if I'm wrong? It's okay to be wrong because this is about safety. And if anybody, and people would understand, but trust your intuition. And because you do know, you know your child the best, more than anybody. If something doesn't feel comfortable with you and your child, what's happening with your child, it's okay to say something because you would in other situations. And if you get it wrong, it's okay. You're keeping your child Absolutely. safe. Absolutely. Trust is so important. And then setting family boundaries is our second takeaway. Yeah. So, you know, setting family boundaries is something that 
is so important and it goes right along with trusting your intuition because when we set boundaries, that means we're also working to keep them, right? And recognizing when other people might be not following our family boundaries. And, you know, one thing that I always keep in mind is that as a parent, we always have the right to decide who our child gets to spend time with. You know, if there's somebody in our family or somebody in our neighborhood or in our community that doesn't seem to be respecting our boundaries in in some way, even if it's just really mild, you know, we don't have to make a gazillion excuses. We can just say, hmm, I don't really prefer to to have my child spend a lot of time around this person, or I'm going to supervise more, you know, or I'm going to talk to this person about the boundaries and say, you know what, I actually think it's really important, you know, that you respect, you know, my no tickling rule or whatever the boundary is, Um, you know, or it might be, you know, my child doesn't get to, you know, be alone, you know, after school with another adult or something, you know, Um, that is an important boundary to follow. So it's, we have the right to set those boundaries and then follow through and and using our intuition and and just you know speaking up about about the boundaries so the third takeaway is believe your child believing your kids is so important right and sometimes you know trust your child if they make sometimes kids will say like well do I have to go to uncle joe's house you know well he is your uncle or believing him you know Okay, you know, if you don't want to go to Uncle Joe's house, you know, let's talk about that. Or um, if this makes me feel uncomfortable, the tickling, or I don't like to be tickled, you know, pay attention and believe um, when they express discomfort, right? If they don't want to, they don't want to play tickling or I'm tired of tickling. I said, stop, you know, and paying attention to that. Erin, you talked about, you know, when you set those family boundaries, right? And if, if, the tickling continues, and if a child, if your child says, I don't want to, pay attention to them and believe them, you know, and and sometimes kids, when they disclose, sometimes they don't disclose and say so-and-so or grandpa or, or, you know, Uncle Joe did this. They may come out and say, you know, he makes me feel weird or he makes me feel, mm, I don't know what it is. And it may not, and that sometimes is paying attention to that and believing So in summary, we covered five common strategies of offenders of child sexual abuse. An offender often builds relationships and trust with the child and the community, starts to blur boundaries, normalizes behaviors that may not be healthy or typical for a child-adult relationship, introduces physical touch, and really relies on secrets to be kept from others. We know that it can be really challenging to know if someone is perpetrating sexual abuse. It's not easy. But remember, as my colleagues mentioned, it is 100% the responsibility of the offender. I think that it can be easy to hear that and feel hopeless or scared. After all, we can't control the actions of other people. But do remember that there are protective actions that you can take to reduce the risk of your child experiencing abuse. These include actions that we have covered in previous episodes, like encouraging discussion of and practice of both setting and respecting boundaries, and regularly engaging in supportive, non-judgmental conversation with your child. And know that it's never too late to work on these things either. Building Resilience is a project of King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, or KSARC, which is located in Renton, Washington. KSARC works to provide direct services to all victims and survivors of sexual assault in King County, Washington. 
visit our website at kcsarc.org and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at kcsarc. Or send us an email at education at kcsarc.org. If you've experienced sexual assault or abuse, know that you are not alone. There are lots of resources to support you in your healing process. Programs similar to KSARC exist around the country. Visit the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, at rainn.org to find a community sexual assault program near you. Thank you to Marie Peretta, Karen Cope, Erin Esteban, and Deanne Yamamoto for content in this episode. Dante Ariaga and Ashley Vesey for tech support, and a special thanks to our super producer, Logan Vesey, on editing, consulting, and mastering the audio, and for the immense support in making this project possible.